Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Bing. Only Bing brings together the best of search with Facebook and Twitter. Try it today at bing.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 12, titled The Eloquence of Plain English, wherein we discuss the powerful, understated artistry of Abraham Lincoln. Hey, Mikey. What's up, Sheeny? Okay, the reason I'm laughing instead of like crawling through the ISDN line to punch you in the nose (laughs) is that that's a reference to something that came up in the last episode. Yeah. Your ignorance of this epithet against Jews. So now you've learned it, and uh, it sounds to me like you're all aboard. I mentioned last week that my grandfather-in-law asked me if I was familiar with the word Sheeny. I wasn't. We got an email from a listener named Irvin Hubler who points out that the word Sheeny comes up quite a bit in Miller's Crossing, which happens to be one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies, which raises the question... How was I not familiar with that word? You know, we all have gaps in our literacy, even an urbane man such as yourself. Uh, You know, you had me on grip as a a synonym for suitcase. So uh, who among us is the entire dictionary? I got a hold of the film Miller's Crossing and the screenplay just to prove to myself that the word Sheeny was in there. And sure enough, it's used at least four or five times, including... In the first 40 seconds of the movie. So let's go to the script. Fade in. A close shot of a whiskey tumbler that sits on an oak sidebar under a glowing green banker's lamp as two ice cubes are dropped in. From elsewhere in the room, a voice. You know I'm a sporting man. I like to lay the occasional bet. (laughs) But I ain't that sporting. When I fix a fight, say I uh, pay a three to one favor to throw a goddamn fight. I figure I got the right to expect that fight to go off at three to one. But every time I lay in bed with a son of a bitch burning bomb bomb, 
Before I know it, the odds is even up. Or worse, I'm betting on the short money. The Sheeny knows I like short things. He's selling the information. I fixed the fight. The Sheeny knows I like short things. He's selling the information. I fixed the fight. <laughs> That's actually a pretty good John Polito. And the Sheeny, of course, is John Turturro's character, Bernie Birnbaum. And in fact, I found another movie in which the word Sheeny is used. It's a Sidney Lumet movie from 1964 called The Pawnbroker, which I've never seen. Oh, my goodness. Run, don't walk. Yeah. Rod Steiger is phenomenal. Geraldine Page is phenomenal. It's very affecting film. I read a little bit about it. It stars Rod Steiger as a Holocaust survivor who lost his family and friends at Auschwitz and no longer cares about anything except money. And he invokes the word sheeny, among other Jewish epithets, during a very poignant emotional scene. You're known as a usurer, a man with secret resources, a witch, a pawnbroker, a sheeny, a mocky, and a kite! Those are the only two movies I know of in which the word is used. If we can find a third, Bob, we could have ourselves a sheeny movie marathon. I think uh, Mary Poppins. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Dick Van Dyke, in the world's worst Cockney accent ever, I think, says something about the Shaneys. I'm doubtful. It's in the director's cut. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many times my grandparents just rolled over in their graves. I, I certainly hope this does uh, bring the anti-Semitic slur portion of our program to a close, though, because I'm beginning to get a little uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. So as you know, Bob, it's typical when recording, as we're doing now, for a podcast or a radio show to do a mic check to test our voice levels. And for as long as I've known you, most of the time when prompted to do a mic check, you begin reciting what? The Gettysburg Address. Yeah, you know, over the past, what, eight years or so, I think I've heard the opening lines of the Gettysburg Address a hundred, maybe more times. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever asked you why that's your standard mic check. Is there a reason? Well, there, were, there are a lot of words in it and sounds okay. that test the things that engineers like to have tests for like plosives, you know, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I know the beginning of the Gettysburg Address and I get to freshly impress interns who are in the control room, and they go, wow, that Bob may not ask good questions during an interview, but he certainly does know the first 17% of the Gettysburg Address. And I do. Well, this past Memorial Day weekend, I walked the length of the mall here in Washington, starting at the end with the Capitol building, stopping at the World War II Memorial, the Washington Monument, and then finally the Lincoln Memorial. And if you walk up the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial and you're facing Lincoln, to your right, inscribed on the wall, in its entirety is his second inaugural, and to the left is the Gettysburg Address, which I read all the way through for the first time in many, many years, I'm sure. Pretty impressive piece of work, uh etched in marble or, or not. It's an amazing piece of writing. Yeah, I was really moved and also struck by how simple and beautiful a piece of writing it was. I've come to think of it in this past week as a kind of pure linguistic distillation of the Civil War. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I've lived in Washington for decades, and I've climbed those steps many a time and read those words many a time. And I've got to tell you, 
I have exactly the same experience. The mall there, that end of the mall, there's the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which in and of itself conjures up, you know, a lot of emotions. And then you go up to the Lincoln Memorial and, you know, you just start thinking about the history of this nation and of what people have suffered for. And in that very brief bit of text, kind of why? It's uh, it's a gut kick. Yeah. It's just so crystalline, especially as I compare it to what I imagine to be the rhetorical style of the age. Contrary to everything you've always asserted, I did not live through the middle part of the 19th century. <laughs> but, you know, have seen enough Raymond Massey movies to imagine a bunch of, you know, blowhards standing on stumps, thumbing their lapels and pompously delivering a stem winder, right? Yeah. And the Gettysburg Address is many things, but one of them is not a stem winder. It's just so concise. Yeah, the prevailing oratorical style of the time was what we would now consider bombastic, right? There was Daniel Webster, Henry Clay from Kentucky. Those are two people we associate with this style. In fact, the person that many people thought was the best orator of the time was a guy that most people no longer remember. His name was Edward Everett. He was a politician and a statesman and an educator, but mostly he was a kind of professional speechmaker. He would pop up at battleground commemorations, school openings, bar mitzvahs, wherever somebody would have him speak. And I'll give you an example of his style, which was typical of the day. Here are two sentences from a speech in 1851 celebrating the anniversary of the birth of George Washington. I feel like I should clear my throat and grab my lapels before I say this. The memory of Washington is indeed an inestimable portion of the moral treasure of the country, and I do not know but that I might almost say, but for the sacrifice of human life that would be occasioned by it, that one would rather that half the continent should sink than that we should lose his memory and character, a character to be held up to the imitation of our children, to be pointed out to the admiration of the stranger, to be commended to the fervent applause of all mankind, and to be handed down to the latest posterity. Washington was all this and more. Yeah, okay, so maybe it was being paid by the word. I think there was a sentence in that speech that never ended. <laughs> so I have this idea of that being the predominant style of the day, too. And I wondered, how was it that Lincoln came to have an entirely different voice? I spoke to a guy named Douglas Wilson. He's co-director of the Lincoln Studies Center at Knox College in Illinois. And he's, he's one of the foremost experts on Lincoln's writing and his use of language. He wrote a book about this called Lincoln's Sword. He points out that Lincoln, when he was starting out in politics, also spoke this way. In fact, Wilson quoted for me part of the earliest full speech that we have by Lincoln from 1838, in which Lincoln is talking about the Founding Fathers, and he says, Theirs was the task, and nobly they performed it, to possess themselves and through themselves us of this goodly land and to uprear upon its hills and its valleys a political edifice of liberty and equal rights. I guess at the beginning of his political career, he was susceptible to the same yes. high oratory style as his contemporaries. Yes, he had to show that he was capable of doing it. He's starting out as a nobody, and he gets up to speak, 
and it would have said to his friends, well, this is elevated language, this is above ordinary discourse. But he ultimately decided that that kind of elevated language just wasn't a good fit for him. That's right. In a way, it's too smug. He wants to persuade people. He wants to change their minds. This is a time where people's political convictions are debated heatedly, and they're up for grabs, and he wants to persuade farmers and shopkeepers and ordinary citizens to see things in a different way. So he figures he's got to speak their language rather than talk a kind of authoritative language of, well, I'm an educated, I'm an informed person, let me tell you how things are. Yeah, Mike, I get that, but it's not as though Abraham Lincoln were George W. Bush with Ivy League degrees, you know, and affecting a twang and clearing brush in work shirts to persuade the hoi polloi that he was one of them. Lincoln was one of them. Yeah, he was. He was self-educated. But as Wilson says, he had to, at first, prove that he could fit in with the other great speakers and politicians. You know, Daniel Webster went to Phillips Exeter Academy and then Dartmouth. Edward Everett went to Harvard, taught ancient Greek there, and later became president of Harvard. So before Lincoln could break the rules of elevated language, so to speak, he had to show that he was capable of playing by the rules. But then, in the middle of his political career, he very consciously goes about developing a new vernacular for himself that Wilson calls the eloquence of plain English. And this was so deliberate on Lincoln's part that his friends would later remark about it. His friend Joseph Gillespie, Wilson told me, wrote the following. If Mr. Lincoln studied any one thing more than another, and for effect, it was to make himself understood by all classes. He had great clearness and simplicity of statement, and this faculty he cultivated with marked assiduity. So Gillespie, who knew him very, very well and knew him for a long time, notices that Lincoln has a gift, but he works at it. He cultivates being clear. Lincoln is, you know, trying to talk to Joe the plumber. Or Wait, was there plumbing in the 1850s? <laughs> I don't know, maybe not. No, Joe the trapper, okay? <laughs> and Joe the logger. And he was using very humble language. And yet, if you read the Gettysburg Address, and maybe I'm just corrupted by 21st century vocabulary and syntax, for all its clarity and brevity, it still seems kind of convoluted in some of its constructions, beginning with the first six words of it, the most famous six words, just establishing the time element, four score and seven years ago. Well, that's a fair point, and I will address it, but just bear with me for a second, because one of the ways that Lincoln would cultivate this clarity that Wilson's talking about, this persuasiveness, this eloquence of plain English was to try out different ways of saying the same thing. And what's interesting is that you can see that first line of the Gettysburg Address kind of coalescing over time and taking shape. So in 1854 in Peoria, Illinois, Lincoln, during a speech, says, Near 80 years ago, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. In 1858 in Chicago... Lincoln says, let us discard all this quibbling about this man and the other man, this race and that race and the other race being inferior. 
Let us discard all these things and unite as one people throughout the land until we shall once more stand up declaring that all men are created equal. Yeah, it's pretty inspiring, but it doesn't quite sing. Not yet. On July 7th, 1863, just a few days after the Union victories at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg, a crowd gathered outside the White House to celebrate, and Lincoln came out and spoke to them. He said, How long ago is it? Eighty-odd years since upon the 4th of July, for the first time in the world, a union body of representatives was assembled to declare as a self-evident truth that all men were created equal. Now, that's essentially the first line of the Gettysburg Address, right? Which he wouldn't deliver for another four months. Mm -hmm. But it, it definitely needed to be focus grouped because he still hasn't at this stage nailed it. Well, you zeroed in on the four score in seven years. And first of all, Lincoln was a regular reader of the Bible and might have known that a phrase like that would have biblical resonance for the crowd. Oh, you mean like the kind of coded language that GOP candidates supposedly use to speak to evangelicals while the rest of the world is unawares? Maybe something like that. Lincoln was by no means an evangelical, and he didn't subscribe to any particular Christian faith, but he read the Bible every day by some accounts. It sat on his desk along with a book of Shakespeare's plays. In Psalm 90, the days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. But I think you don't even need to get that complicated, because it may just be that Lincoln recognized that an occasional flourish can really work. There's an old Bob Newhart routine about this from his comedy album in 1960, where he imagines that he's a PR agent. You said focus group before, so this is what reminded me of it. A PR agent talking to Abraham Lincoln. You change, you change four score and seven to, to 87? <laughs> I understand you meant the same thing, Abe. Well, Abe, that's meant to be a grabber. <laughs> well, Abe, it's sort of like Mark Anthony saying, uh, uh, friends, Romans, countrymen, I've got something I want to tell you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if Bob Newhart is right, and he probably was, some of this stuff is just for effect. Yeah, Exactly. Let's take a short break right now and mention our new sponsor this week, Bing.com. I know that people often get really comfortable with the technology that they're using and don't like change. Personally, I like to give myself options. I have a MacBook as my main computer, but I have installed on it also Windows. Uh, it comes with the Safari browser, but I have installed on it also Firefox and Chrome and Internet Explorer. I really like the versatility that having different technological products gives you. So I use different search engines as well. One really interesting thing that Bing is doing now is integrating its searches with social networks and with Twitter so that if you search for something very specific, it will identify people from your social networks or from across Twitter that are experts in that area or who have posted about something related. If you're searching for, say, you know, the population of the United States, well, it doesn't really matter what search engine you use. You're going to find out that one fact no matter what. 
But if you want to tap the wisdom of the crowd, so to speak, then I think there really are differences. And I think that Bing is going about it in a really smart and interesting and fruitful way. Give it a shot. Bing.com. Now, four months after Gettysburg, the battle site is being dedicated as a cemetery. And Lincoln doesn't often give public speeches. He doesn't often even leave Washington. But he recognizes that this is an opportunity to galvanize support for what was likely to be a continuing war. Remember, General Lee got away after his defeat at Gettysburg. He was allowed to retreat, essentially. Lincoln was ticked off about that, thought it would prolong the war, which was already becoming more and more unpopular. So he needed to really hit it out of the park. And he saw Gettysburg as an opportunity to do that. Uh, Plus, it's pretty close to Washington. You know, people don't realize that, but you just, you know, just top on 270 and get off on... Pennsylvania 15, and baby, you're there. Well, I think at that time there was a subway that went directly from Washington oh, to right, Gettysburg. Of course. But it was I'd a forgotten. local, and so... <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten the, the 12 train. Yeah. So the main speaker that day at Gettysburg was none other than Edward Everett, this guy who was just about at every speaking event that the country held. And he spoke for more than two hours. And just to give you a sense of what those hours were like... I'll read for you the first sentence of his speech. You ready? Mm-hmm. Standing beneath this serene sky, overlooking these broad fields now reposing from the labors of the waning year, the mighty Alleghenies dimly towering before us, the graves of our brethren beneath our feet, it is with hesitation that I raise my poor voice to break the eloquent silence of God and nature. Two hours of this, huh? Yeah, two hours of that. I can imagine him not just anesthetizing the audience, but actually paralyzing them for life. I know, right? Dude, just say what you came to say. Lincoln gets up after Everett speaks and talks for two minutes. Here's Douglas Wilson. It took people a while to figure out what a magnificent speech it was. Certainly the people there were puzzled. They couldn't believe it was over. They didn't clap when he stopped talking. They had just sat through a two-hour speech by Edward Everett, the main speech of the day, and they didn't expect him to talk for two hours, but they didn't expect him to stop after two minutes, so they just gawked at him when he stopped talking. Perhaps they could not believe their good fortune. Well, you know, you'd think that they would have clapped if that were the case after a two-minute speech, right? Yeah. But Lincoln knew that this speech would be printed on the cover of every newspaper and that its power would be in reading and rereading it. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Douglas Wilson calls the word proposition the linchpin of the opening sentence. Charles Sumner who was one of the most learned men in the Senate, he objected to that word, and then he finally admitted, I think after Lincoln was dead, that he couldn't find another word that would have served the same purpose. So he conceded that he had been wrong about proposition, that it was, in fact, the right word. And I think it's obvious to us now why it's the right word, and that is that a proposition is something that has yet to be proven. And this is where self-government, democratic self-government was 
at Lincoln's day. So he was trying to evoke this idea of the United States as a noble experiment. As a noble experiment, and that fits into what he's doing here, and that is to inspire people to fight on and prevail so that the proposition isn't proved out in the wrong way. Lincoln is suggesting that the world is looking to us to demonstrate that our proposition is true and that a nation so conceived can actually work. Or, as they also say, long endure. But, Mike, I want to ask you about the deconstruction that has been done over the years on the address, imputing to Lincoln certain rhetorical strategies. They're guessing, right? I mean, is there any basis for understanding his choice of words to be part of a you know, kind of political master plan? I think Lincoln's son had remarked that he didn't know what happened to Lincoln's notes, assuming that they had to be there, right? Because how could this speech come to be otherwise? And in fact, the historian Gary Wills in his book, Lincoln at Gettysburg, says that Lincoln's speech succeeded precisely where Everett's failed. Everett, this Greek scholar in his speech, talks about the Battle of Marathon and how the Greeks repelled the Persian invasion. Lincoln's speech contains no classical references at all, and yet it's astoundingly Greek, says Wills, in its composition and structure. So how does a speech sound Greek? I mean, there's no Kalamata olives sprinkled on it. (laughs) That was the part that was written on the back of the envelope turned out to be a shopping list. (laughs) The Greeks had a tradition of funeral oration. Someone would deliver a eulogy with two major parts, what Gary Wills calls praise for the fallen and advice for the living. And within those two main sections, there were many other sub-elements or themes that were common to all of these funeral orations. And if you go through Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, you can identify all these elements within it. Let's take it line by line, as Gary Wills does in his book. There's the invoking of the ancestors, four score and seven years ago, our fathers, establishing those ancestors as the originators of a place, brought forth on this continent a new nation, conjuring the values of those ancestors, the political values in particular, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Describing the education or struggle required to become a better nation and a better people. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Most Greek funeral orations acknowledged that the funeral ritual, although a sad one, was a necessary and a good one. So in the Gettysburg Address, it is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. And then there's an interesting dichotomy that's set up in many funeral orations, the word versus the deed. Lincoln writes, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, 
but it can never forget what they did here. Now, everything up to that point is praise for the fallen, as Wills calls it. Everything that follows is advice for the living, beginning with an exhortation that the living must prove worthy of the dead. It is for the living, rather, to be dedicated to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us. And finally, comfort for the living that the dead did not die in vain. That from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. It's a masterfully constructed Greek funeral oration, as Gary Wills shows, incorporating all of these elements that were essential to Greek eulogies, whether it was by design or by accident or through an unconscious influence, who can say, really? Well, it's a damn fine piece of writing, and I'm trying to imagine any other presidential declaration brief and pointed enough to be carved into stone on a single wall. And that's why I get a a chill or a thrill or something every time I see the damn thing. Several years ago, Adam Gopnik wrote in The New Yorker that the tendency to obsess over single words and phrases reflects in part the semi-divine status of Lincoln in American history but it also reflects a desire to show that rhetoric and writing were as essential to his career as acts and orders and elections. I would probably take that even a little bit further. I would say that one of the great legacies of Lincoln is the extreme resonant power of his language. He came to believe very deeply over the course of his life in this Enlightenment Age idea, right, encapsulated by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, the idea that all men are created equal. And he reworked that phrase over and over again, rhetorically throughout his public life, until he perfected, really, its role, in a sense, at Gettysburg, and used it as a way to both recall the past and call forth the future in this Greek funereal tradition, and did so in a way that sounded not like oratorical prose, but poetry. Well, I got to throw in with that. It is extraordinarily poetic in its rhythm and in kind of its verve, at least to a 21st century ear, as much a work of art as it is of politics. Amen, brother. If you like our podcast and want to tell us, or if you don't and also want to tell us, you can write to us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed on iTunes, where you can leave a rating or a review. I want to thank Douglas Wilson, author of Lincoln's Sword, and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. Well, Mike, that was one score of minutes well spent. We done here? We are done. Later, Gator. Gator.